Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, today we gather uh, to celebrate your son who is king, the true king, the real king, that brings life and peace and healing. And though we know that the events of Holy Week went decidedly sour and tragic, we also know that that's not the end of the story. And so we do indeed celebrate our King and say Hosanna on this day. Amen. I once asked a middle-aged woman in my congregation uh, why she didn't come to church anymore. And she said, when my son got into trouble with the law, I was too ashamed to come to church. What would they think? It made me sad to hear that. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? In our lesson today, we learn that the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, in church, and he cured them. And no, that's not normally where they went. Is the church a club for righteous people or a hospital for sinners? A refuge from the world or a mission outpost to a broken world? In Matthew, as Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly and Holy Week begins, these are the very big questions that are being worked. What is the temple, church, for? Why did God get mixed up in human history? Let's reconstruct Jesus' grand entrance into Jerusalem a mere five days before he would be crucified. First of all, uh, a pause for a lighter moment, courtesy of our text today. Come, it's right there. Just like we had two gospel lessons today. Did you notice in the reading there are two donkeys that Jesus rode? It appears Jesus may have had hidden talents here. Uh, you may have noticed in the reading Jesus instructs his disciples to obtain not just a donkey for Jesus' ride into Jerusalem, but also a colt of a donkey. Now, this is in Matthew, but not in the John text that we read. As our text tells us, this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So apparently, uh, Jesus has some real skill here, entering Jerusalem riding both a donkey and a colt. Um, I don't know, did Jesus have rodeo experience or something? What, what, what image comes to mind for you as you read this? Um, it's a little bit funny, don't you think? <laughs> okay, it's not. Now, 
No one knows for sure why Matthew alone insists on this detail or why he interpreted the Zechariah prophecy so literally. But whatever Matthew meant and whatever it may have looked like that day uh, challenges our imaginations. Who says the Bible isn't a little bit fun? The real takeaway, though, is that Jesus entered Jerusalem in keeping with how any king would, would enter a town in this Roman outpost, in, in this uh, culture. Not only was he riding an animal or two, but this description follows the classic pattern of how a king or emperor would enter a city. As the king approached, people would come out of uh, the city and, and welcome the king and escort him in. So as Jesus approaches, they are clearly giving him a royal welcome. And, and the energy would have been at least that, that it was, as Jenny got us going here just a couple minutes ago. At least that, mind you. An acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship. And given that Jesus normally traveled on foot, the fact that he was now riding a donkey indicated that, that he embraced his own royalty. Yes, I am a king, said he. However, often when a king or emperor rode into a town, it was on a horse. A horse signified power and military might, and often that a battle had just been won. The Old Testament had another tradition, though, a king riding a donkey. This meant the king was coming in peace, and perhaps that his kingdom was more about saving the human spirit than it was carving up opponents in battle. A donkey, in contrast to a horse, was also an animal of the people, symbolizing humility. Consider also that Jesus was not dressed royally here, probably wearing a simple robe or tunic. So, perceiving this humble man, this peaceful king of the people, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But I think it's fair to say that few, if any, really understood the radical nature of this king. For, as we know in this story, they would soon turn on him. By the time he got into the city, it says Jerusalem was in turmoil. Taken off guard were they by the donkey and the king without royal colors who didn't have his chest puffed out to intimidate people. And it prompted a bewildered question from them. Who is this? He is the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, the crowd said. What happened to King? He's a prophet? I think they were all confused. Who is this? Who is this? Have you ever, ever asked that yourself? Who was and is Jesus? We are, after all, a Jesus-centric religion. But sometimes we're afraid, I think, particularly in our modern culture, to be too much about Jesus. You know, we don't want to be labeled or make anyone uncomfortable. Who is Jesus and what claim does he have on my life? Is he really 
God or just a really good teacher? That's safe. Can he really save me or only show me the way to go to perhaps save myself? Who is this? That's the question they were, they were uh, vexing over in Jerusalem. Well, they were about to find out or, or at least receive a key piece to the puzzle as Jesus made his way to the Jerusalem temple, the very center of the Jewish religion. It says that Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying, overturning tables and, and chairs of those who were selling doves and, and other animals. Uh, well, that, that's quite an entrance. Um, My house shall be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers, said Jesus. Well, it sounds a little heavy. What did he mean by all this? Well, this passage has usually been interpreted across all the Gospels, but they're all, they all have a different take on it. Um, but it's usually been interpreted as a statement against those who are selling and profiting in the temple, right? Is that kind of how you've understood it? However, Jesus' beef is not actually with the sellers, interestingly enough. They were, in fact, conducting a legitimate business that provided animals for sacrifice in worship, a practice that had all kinds of biblical support in Judaism. So, with whom did Jesus have his beef? With the worshipers, or many of them. They were the den of robbers, or at least the many who viewed the temple as a sort of sanctuary of protection from their, deeds of mis, uh, from their deeds of injustice, a place where they could sort of maintain the illusion that they were right with God because they made sacrifices of animals after all, and they were allowed in the temple while others were not, reflecting the social order of their day, of course. This is exactly what Jeremiah centuries earlier and the prophets railed against over and over again, namely the longstanding phenomenon of privileged worshipers who engaged in oppression on the outside and at the very least turned a blind eye toward the blind and the lame, the poor and the widows, the orphans and children in general, the morally stigmatized and the despairing. So, the den of robbers were those who viewed themselves as an exclusive club of God's favorites with little regard for what God's mission was and is in the world. And if that is in doubt at all, you get verse 14. Verse 14, which tells us exactly what Jesus' agenda is. And it reads, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. Bear in mind, the blind and the lame were not allowed in the temple. Their afflictions taken to be evidence of their sin and unworthiness. They were simply unclean altogether. So Jesus declared that God's temple henceforth is for sinners, for the lost, for the marginalized, for the sick not just for the power brokers. 
at the top of the social hierarchy. So, as Jesus, according to Matthew, casts out worshipers and powerful ones who are seeking refuge from their misdeeds, simultaneously he invites those who have been excluded who don't belong, the blind, the lame, and children. You wouldn't think children. We don't have an issue with children being here. That's a good thing. Uh, bless the children and let them come to me, Jesus said. So in Matthew, Jesus' disruption of the temple is all about transformation, the transformation of the temple into a place of healing, into a place of salvation. As Jesus began healing the blind and the lame, a most amazing thing also took place. Children were there. And again, this was, not, this was not normal. We take it for granted here. Children were not normally allowed in the temple, but it says that children were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, this is just a spectacular scene. Children in this culture were supposed to be uh, seen and not heard, or in many situations, not even seen. But here they are, shouting praise to the king who counts them as valued members of his kingdom. And then we learn in our text that when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things Jesus did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry. And they said to him, Do you hear what, what these are saying? You know, these. These little unworthy human beings. Implied. And Jesus quoted scripture to the chief priests, pointing out that even out of the mouths of infants, and nursing babies, praise will be uttered for this king. That's quite an image, isn't it? Babies singing praise? A bit surreal, these images that are given to us today. So, the church is no longer a building, but a community. A community of life, of healing, of forgiveness, and it is for everyone. The children get it, <laughs> while the leaders, you know, the supposedly the smart, educated ones, do not. Jesus is making a broader point here as well. Jesus says, very memorably, God's house is a house of prayer. And in a correct understanding of Hebrew prayer, prayer is also and always not only dumping something on God's lap, it is a commitment on the part of the one who prays to actively seek and work for the end result of what you're praying for. Prayer is a way of saying, I'm in on this mission I place it in your hands, God, and now I will join you as a partner in helping to bring it about. That's what prayer means. Jesus understood that. And this is a very Matthew-like theme. Knowing the truth doesn't count for much with Jesus, according to Matthew. It's not the same as doing the truth. Getting an A-plus in ethics class is not the same as being an ethical person.
person in life, right? You could ace the test in class and be a really bad human being. Such was the case with the crowd Jesus was challenging in the temple and in Jerusalem as a whole. I mentioned, though, that Jesus had five more days to live after this temple scene. Many scholars think it was actually four days that this occurred on Monday. Four days. And the chief priests shut him down. And Pilate, and you know how that story goes. And not only the leaders, the powerful people, but the crowd too. You know, <laughs> the ones who are, oh, we're all about Jesus the King. Really? Jesus presented a counter-proposal and vision for what a real kingdom is and a real king. And it didn't go down too well. So, fellow Mount Carmelites, what, what does this mean for our worship gatherings, do you think? How do, how do you read this? How do, you, how do you hear it? With the reminder and recognition that Mount Carmel is not a building or an institution, but a community of healing and promise, how do we make our way from here on Monday and Tuesday in the year 2019? How do we remind one another that we are called to be subversive and a part of a transformative activity in a world where many believe God's power is to be hoarded by the self-righteous? Amen.